Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading through the Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we are about to begin chapter 11 of our slow read through Master Commander. Ian, can you tell us where we are and where we're headed? With great pleasure, Mike. Last time... We had this ongoing personal conflict between Jack and Dylan, which was civil on the surface, but came to a head as they both sought action of some kind to ease their troubles. Jack was easing the hurt that he had at the hands of Molly Hart. Dylan having this wound to his honour in the light of his, you know, his past connection with the United Irishman. The Sophie had taken two prizes thanks to Jack's secret intelligence. Stephen, meanwhile, had tried to counsel Jack not to fight a duel with Dylan or turn to recklessness. They had been going after Barcelona gunboats and had once again encountered the Cacafuego, this time Mike winning that stunning victory, a page right out of Thomas Cochran's playbook. But at the close of the chapter, tragically, we had lost James Dillon and young Ellis. So Mike, this time, the Sophie's back to Mahon. We're going to hear how the victory is being reported. Jack's going to get reunited with Molly Hart. He's going to be a little bit surprised, I think, by his reception ashore. There's an unexpected end to the Cacafuego story, two unexpected missions, and along the way, we're going to learn about peccant parts. We're going to revisit the music room in the governor's house with some boccherini this time. We're going to remember James Dillon. We're going to light up the sky and get close to the French. Close enough for comfort? I don't know. Well, we join our heroes on the Sophie in Mahan Harbor. Jack is reviewing his draft of his official letter with Stephen. Uh, you know, he's reporting about the taking of the Cacafuego with its 32 guns, 22 long 12-pounders, eight nines, two heavy carronades, and 319 men. Uh, as part of that letter, he laments the loss of Lieutenant Dillon, says he's unable to render just praise for Dillon's gallant conduct and impetuous attack. He also reports the loss of Mr. Ellis, a supernumerary, that is, you know, not a regular member of the ship's crew. Right. And as as Jack's reading this through to Stephen, Stephen recalls, he tells Jack, you know, I saw Dylan for just a short while on the Cacafuego, right after Jack had kind of hollered for everybody to come meet him at that gangway there. He said he saw Dylan pistoling a man, putting his sword through uh, an enemy who had beaten down the Sophie's bosun, that... With another attack, Dylan's sword had broken on another man's breastplate or breastbone, but Dylan had taken the stub and was repeatedly stabbing him right through the heart. And Stephen recalls, you know, you would not believe the happiness on his face, the light on his face. And I assume Stephen's talking about Dylan, not the guy getting stabbed here. I think so. <laughs> right. Well, Jack's letter goes on to praise the great exertions and good conduct of Mr. Pullings, a past midshipman, an acting lieutenant, who I beg to recommend to their lordship's attention. Uh, he calls out the bosun, the carpenter, the gunner, the petty officers. But O'Brien notes he leaves Stephen Matron out at Stephen's request. And Ian, this, this is kind of an interesting 
slight variation from Cochrane, right here. It's not. Yeah. Yeah, really fascinating about the connection to Cochrane and really fascinating about what we're learning about Stephen here as well. Stephen's, how should we put this gently, his future occupation or his interest is getting another little discreet airing here in the fact that he's been withheld from this letter. The letter that Jack Aubrey has written in the text that we're hearing about here is pretty much word for word a transcript of Thomas Cochrane's real-world letter about the capture of the Gamo, except for a couple of things. First of all, except for members of the crew who he chooses to name, Jack chooses to name, Dylan, Ellis, and Pullings, and those three weren't part of the real story, and the first lieutenant of the Speedy survived, albeit wounded. And second is that Cochrane made careful mention and generous mention of the conduct of his surgeon, Guthrie. So surely Stephen's conduct would have been worth a mention just like Guthrie's, but O'Brien chose to withhold it, or rather specifically chose to have Stephen or Maturin request that it is held back. So, you know, I'm kind of you know hearing what might be going on through Stephen Maturin's brain here. It, I've, I've hung out with merchants in Catalan market squares. I'm well connected in non-military scientific circles. I'm aware of the impact of gossip in the intelligence picture in the Mediterranean but then also, I'm just this unassuming guy, and I'm not your typical everyday loyal subject of King George either. So kindly leave me out of your Gazette letter, is what he's saying to Jack here. And I think that that's all pretty deliberate on the part of O'Brien. Well spotted. Well spotted, Ian. Now, Jack closes the letter, having noted the what you might call the butcher's bill. Sophie had three killed and eight wounded, compared to the Cacafuego, who lost her captain, her boatswain, 13 other dead and 41 wounded. He sends the final copy to Captain Hart since the Commandant Lord Keith is at the other end of the Mediterranean. And we get this little moment of reflecting back on the quality of the letter. O'Brien says it was a passable letter. Um, even if it had been a model of naval eloquence, which it clearly wasn't, it would still be inadequate, as every sea officer would know. For example, says O'Brien, it spoke of the engagement as something isolated in time, coolly observed, reasonably fought and clearly remembered, whereas almost everything of real importance was before or after the blaze of fighting. And even in that he, Jack, could scarcely tell what came first. Mm. And Mike, I think this is a pretty common thing when people are recollecting violent, dramatic events and especially warfare. Without the log, it says Jack couldn't remember what came after. You couldn't remember all the labor, the anxiety, and the weariness of getting this big prize with hundreds of prisoners into Mahon, getting through rough seas, doing all of this with a badly wounded boatswain. In the fog of his memory, Jack recalls pulling, shouting into Jack's deafened ear that gunboats were coming from Barcelona. He remembers firing the frigate's undamaged broadside at them until, with great relief, they turned back. Why they turned back, he doesn't know. He remembers the cries that woke him as the Irishmen of the crew had James Dillon's wake, this great kind of shouting, chanting, kind of screaming ceremony. Um, tears returned to his eyes as Jack recalled his own moment of weeping, seeing the body of young Ellis with the flag sewn over him and all the other men too going over the side. And rewriting this letter, we learn, had brought the memories back and brought back the sadness, which lasted from the time the battle ended until they'd fired guns some miles off Cape Mola to get a pilot and some assistance when the wind died. So Jack is, from first inspection, on a high, you know, trailing clouds of glory. But as we've often heard and we're going to hear, that's really, really bittersweet for Jack immediately after action here. 
finally, you know, all this sadness, as you're saying, Ian, you know, post-action sadness seems to be extended here, but finally joy breaks through and, and Jack's trying to think and he, he's not sure exactly when it happened. Maybe it started to happen when all these other captains' boats started showing up as the Sophie arrived in the harbor here. They're congratulating Jack. And then Marshall and Moet get back on the ship. You know, they brought in prized and and O'Brien writes, they were almost out of their minds with grief for not having taken part in the action, yet already shining with the reflected glory. Everybody's coming aboard to help. Uh, People's boats are helping tow the Sophie and her prize into the harbor. Their men are coming aboard. Some of the prize crews that Jack had sent out to relieve the exhausted men guarding the prisoners. And, and Jack's sitting there talking with all of them and falls asleep in the midst of answering their questions. <laughs> it's a great moment, isn't it? It's a great reminder of what Jack and the rest of the crew have been uh, have been through. We're going to come back, I think, to this idea of being, being visited and, and congratulated by other professional members of the Navy. Already he's got a visit from Captain Senate of the Bellerophon, Captain Butler of the Nyad. Mike, I don't think either of those is a, is, is a real-world timeline recollection but they're both certainly were real ships we'll come back to a real one coming up later on jack having fallen asleep wakes up in the harbor and uh, and he receives an unsigned note from his lover molly hart and at that point having had all of this kind of bittersweet reflection here at that point the joy and the great swelling delight as o'brien calls it took over his grief over the man, his sorrow, his guilt, a, a guilt whose nature eluded him over Dylan, um, was certainly intense, but it didn't last. His thinking brain, his reason told him that there had not been many successful single ship actions between quite such unequal opponents, and that unless he did something spectacularly foolish, unless he blew himself as high as the Boyne, the next thing that would reach him from the Admiralty would be news of his being gazetted, of being made a post-captain. And Mike, interestingly, uncommon swelling of delight seems to be a bit of a phrase that we're turning back to here a few times. It's a bit of a, an O'Brien epithet. And blowing himself up as high as the Boyne, what, what was the Boyne and how high was it really? Yeah, well, the, the, you know, it was a great, just a, you know, kind of a quick passing reference here, but the HMS Boyne, a 98-gun Royal Navy flagship of Vice Admiral John Jervis. In 1794, it caught fire while lying at anchor at Spithead. You know, the speculation is possibility that, that this funnel of the wardroom stove passing through decks set fires to papers in the admiral's captain. But by the time they realized it was on fire, it was rigged up through the decks. Boats from ships at anchor around it saved all but 11 crew members. And, and all the other ships around it that were anchored around it, uh, you know, luckily got away successfully. However, two of the seamen who had come to rescue people were killed as and a member of the Queen Charlotte was injured as Boyne's cannons were cooking off. We remember Dylan's action in the dark, which sounded a lot like this as well. You know, this idea of going back to rescue a ship on fire. So, you know, blowing up as high as the Boyne, real incident there. Yeah. Well, Jack's sitting here and he and he's relishing the thought of promotion. And and he kind of, you know, his relishing gets away with him. He thinks, you know, ah, you know, I could get a post captain, I'll have command of a frigate, you know. And he's thinking about all these incredible frigates now uh, in the Navy. But then he thinks, well, really, actually, as as a newly minted post captain, probably he would just deserve a 20 gun post ship. But then 
well, wait a minute. I don't have any right to a frigate, but hey, I didn't have any right to set about the caca fuego. I didn't have any right to make love to Molly Hart, but I have several times in different places, Jack's kind of thinking to himself, including a post chase, uh, uh, including a bower, another bower, you know, once all night long. And then he starts wondering, I wonder if that's what's making me so tired. I wonder if this is why some of my wounds are coming from when they hurt so much. Uh, which so, of us hasn't had that problem, frankly? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's this, uh, I couldn't help but uh, remember back to the high school and college days. It wasn't a post chase, but, uh, you know, this <laughs> making love in the back of a vehicle somewhere, right? And, uh, you know, a post chase. I, I, you know, we hear these throughout the canon. I, I've always thought about these as kind of, you know, really nice carriages for transporting people. What I didn't realize is that in this post chase, the driver isn't riding on the coach like in a lot of vehicles. The driver is actually riding out on one of the horses. So if you wanted oh. kind of a, a nice, modest way to, uh, you know, with a little bit of privacy, <laughs> you've got your driver up there at the head of the horses while you are, and your love are, are in the box here. Uh, by the way, called post-chase, uh, not just because it's sometimes carried mail, but it's not to be confused with the regular, you know, sort of utilitarian mail vehicles but because the teams of horses were traded out at posts along the way. By the way, Google Ngram hit 1801. Boom, we are just, you know, here we go. Right on it. <laughs> Mike, this is a really nice little moment of reflection for Jack. You know, again, through this book, we've got Jack, the kind of hearty, slightly naive lieutenant at the beginning, and now he's turning into a bit of a more mature character. And O'Brien, I think, is is testing out his literary chops here as well. I really love this sentence where Brian talks about Jack blinking comfortably into the future as though it were a sea coal fire. Wow. He's, he's reaching really hard for a literary style here. I, he, he doesn't try this very often, very much more often in the future, this very, very stylistic thing, but he uses these really nice pieces of figurative language. I think we'd really notice it and really enjoy it. Right, right. Yeah, and we know him so much for his nautical scenes and the descriptions of the sea and the sky and... But this, this is a great line here. And boy, you know, after everything he's been through, kind of nodding off and looking at this sea coal fire, I, I love it. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, he feels like dozing, like sort of giving into that fire. But he decides, you know, wait, no, no, it's a time to go for it. It's time to make a dash for that frigate that he really wants to, to seize fortune while she's within his reach. He decides he's going to write to Queenie, maybe write to his father, though his father sometimes makes a mess of things, mismanaging what little interest his family has. But first, he realizes he's got to get that public letter that he's written delivered. Hmm. And right now, of course, he thinks it's a done deal. He's he's writing it. It's going to get sent home. When it gets sent home, he's going to have this great promotion and he can now kind of toy with the idea of, is he going to get a 20-gun sloop or is he going to get a frigate? He's got this character of heart kind of in the way here. Going to get ashore here, I think, and find out how the land lies with all of his different influences and stakeholders here. Um, he decides he's going to try and seize fortune. He heads ashore with all of this ambition in his heart here. Um, this is the first time he's gone on shore openly since they came back from this action. He's carrying this letter to the commandant's office with some guilt. He's got some stirrings of either something that feels like conscience or something that feels like principle, maybe, maybe at least decency, all the way to Captain Hart's outer office. 
because maybe he's realizing that perhaps he spent rather too much of the wrong kind of time with the wrong member of the heart couple here for the right. goodness of his career. Captain Hart, even so, greets him and congratulates him on what he calls his prodigious good luck. He receives the letter, kind of looks at it in an offhand way, and launches into a diatribe about all the supplies that Jack's requested from the dockyard. Mr. Brown, who we heard of way back in Chapter 2, says he can't supply even half of what Jack's requested. No frigate or ship of the line, says Hart, ever requested half as much. And there's this quite nicely written kind of catty side to what Hart's saying here and how he's saying it. But for now, Jack is on an even keel. I really like this. Well, Mr. Brown, he says, if Mr. Brown can tell me how to take a 32-gun frigate without having a few spars knocked away, I shall be obliged to him. Which is pretty good going, Jack. A little sassy, but, you know, within the realms. Hart tells Jack that we're all out of supplies here. You're going to have to go to Malta for a refit. And Jack realises more clearly now Hart is trying to be ill-natured and coming off as a bit petty and a bit childish, really. So Jack pays no attention until he's stabbed by this remark of Hart's about whether or not Jack has yet written to the Ellis people yet, the parents of the uh, boy who was killed. He says, his public letter, that's easy to write. The death letters to families are completely different. I've got no idea, he says, what you're going to say to the Ellises. And looking at Hart, the text says, Jack had a moral certainty that the financial setback, misfortune, disaster, or whatever it was, affected him far more than the debauching of his wife. And I'm, I'm very proud here of Jack for keeping an even keel, and, but I also really admire the way O'Brien's written this very petty, passive-aggressive little snide conversation with, with Captain Hart. Now, Jack had already written the letters to the families of Ellis and Dylan and others. He was thinking about them, when he encountered Captain Keats of HMS Superb. And Mike, here's the real deal. Captain Keats and HMS Superb absolutely were in the Western Mediterranean in 1801. Captain Keats was a real guy. HMS Superb was absolutely in this theatre at this time. There's a very, very good historical reason why O'Brien has presented us with this officer and this ship. We're going to find out about that in the next chapter. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. What's really great, though, is the way Keats steps up, hand outstretched, to congratulate Jack on his splendid victory. He talks about being amazed rowing around the Cacafuego, seeing all the damage that was done, seeing the size of her. Keats offers his boatswain, his carpenter, his sailmakers to help the Sophie, invites Jack to dine aboard. He says, I know every woman in Mahon will already have filled your calendar. They'll all want to exhibit you. And Jack is really happy. So happy, in fact, that he squeezes Keats's hand far too hard, gets a really hard squeeze in return, tells him how much he values his opinion, is sorry he's committed to dine with the governor and to stay for music, but he welcomes Keats's party to help with the Sophie. Why, he said, I should look upon it as a most welcome, indeed a heaven-sent relief. I'm like, this, I, I'm really happy here that he's getting this congratulation from Keats and he's strolling along the shoreline here in Mahon and it uh, it continues, right? It does. It's it's great. You know, Keats actually takes Jack's arm, you know, and accompanies him, you know, as they walk down uh, to the crown. And he's introducing Jack to all the captains along the way. So this Keats is well-known, well-respected. 
And, you know, he keeps saying, you know, come see who I've got here. It's Captain Aubrey, uh, you know, the Sophie. And it, it, one that he induces him to is Captain Grenville, as it described as this battle-scarred veteran with a one-eyed smile. He, like all the rest of them, are praising Jack. And you hear these phrases, you know, as neat an action as I ever knew. Nelson will rejoice on this. We know that kindles a great happiness in, in Jack's heart. Uh, you know, one commander says, if there's justice on earth, the frigate will be bought by government and Captain Aubrey giving command of her. And, and Jack also reports, you know, according to O'Brien, that he sees this these looks of unfeigned respect, goodwill and admiration on all these seamen and junior officers who walk by, you know, they, they can't, you know, because of hierarchy, they can't just step up and speak to Jack, but they're all looking at him with this admiration here. Um, and even two officers very senior to Jack, who Jack's known have been very jealous of his prizes and said some pretty nasty things in the past, hurry over to him, compliment him handsomely with good grace. So, you know, after this meeting with Hart, it's really nice to get some accolades from people that Jack respects and admires. And I, by the way, I, I really like this. I think we talked about this when we did our first go through. This it, it appears as a theme. Lots of the high points in the Jack Aubrey story are moments where he's getting this kind of praise and fellowship from his colleagues, from his fellow sea officers, nice. and from the seamen as well. And this is just a little first hint of that really, really warm feeling. I, you know, I appreciate this as well. It's a, it's a great feeling when people come up and say, great job. A little moment, if I may say, with a tiny, tiny spoiler here, a little tiny foretaste of a moment where we hear the word off hats. <laughs> Boy, yeah. I, and somebody, somebody was on one of the Facebook boards. This will be a couple weeks ago by the time this is actually published. But you know, talking about that that's the moment that really brings tears to their eyes in the canon. You know, we all have our own favorites, but that is a fabulous one. So, you know, again, no no spoiler other than to say you'll hear that phrase somewhere. And it's a wonderful time here. Yeah. And Ian, you you did a little research on Grenville, this captain who Jack meets. Right? Yeah, interesting name. I don't think there was a real Grenville in the Western Mediterranean commanding a ship at this time. There were certainly Grenvilles in naval history. There was a very famous Captain Grenville in the 16th century, back in Elizabethan times. Whenever anybody talks about Captain Grenville, he's the one that they mean. Um, there was also a Grenville who was Foreign Secretary of the UK at exactly this time and went on to be Prime Minister about five or six years later. He had a relation who was in the army as well. But I think this is just O'Brien choosing a, a resonant contemporaneous sounding name, but without taking a real name out of the history books here. Yeah, brilliant. As he gets back to his room, Jack says, and, and I love this line from O'Brien, this must be what they call the vapors. Uh, <laughs> and it says, Jack said, trying to define something happy, tremulous, poignant, church-like, and not far from tears in his heart and bosom. He sat there, the feeling lasted, indeed grew stronger, and when Mercedes darted in, he gazed at her with a mild benevolence, a kind and brotherly look. And so we've got this, this great moment here of Jack, you know, kind of soaking this all in, you know, kind of really almost for a guy who sometimes is not very self-aware trying to say, wow, what is this that's going on inside of me? And then I think 
you know, Mercedes darts in and Jack drifts right back into very familiar waters <laughs> and feelings for himself. Yeah, what what happens with Mercedes visiting his room here? <laughs> well, she she goes to hug him and calls him brave and good and pretty in Catalan. He gives Mercy her auntie's reward for the Spanish shipping intelligence to say thank you, Mercedes aunt, for all the great uh, steers you've given me. And he's got something from Mercedes as well. He gives her a present. He, I love the way he mangles together Italian and Spanish and French and English. Y aquí, he says, bringing out a neat sealing wax packet, is a little regalo para vous, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> Which is real language soup right there. She's really delighted. She opens up this packet, sees the diamond cross, kisses him, puts it on, runs over to a mirror. She's not, not averse. To, uh, to a little bit of vanity here, runs back to Jack, sucks in her waist, puffs out her bosom, bends over him with the diamonds winking in the hollow, asking repeatedly, you like him? You like him? And I love this description. Jack's eyes grew less brotherly. Oh, far less brotherly. His glottis stiffened and his heart began to thump. Yeah, and Mike, at this point, I'm thinking his glottis stiffened. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Um, oh, yes, I like him says Jack hoarsely, just at that moment, as the bosun of the superb, uh, Mr. Timely, as we've come to call him, opens Jack's door, steps in, says, oh, big pardon, sir. And it's a really, really great comic moment. Piled on, Jack speaking foreign badly, Jack finding another moment to indulge in his warm animal spirits, and then getting the whole moment kicked out from under him by a functionary opening the door. I think we're all pretty sure that it's not just Jack's vocal cords that were giving him a problem right there. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Stephen Gladys, for those of you who went, you know, kind of went running to the dictionary and went, oh, oh, part of his larynx? Wait, wait, I was thinking of something else, just like O'Brien wanted us to, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, this untimely or perhaps timely interruption of Mr. Timely is 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 kind of icing on the cake. You know, I, I'm thinking to myself originally, you know, when he saw Mercedes, he'd ask for a little cold wine and, and you know, might think of Mr. Timely as the cold water being splashed on Jack here. I, I love these secondary characters. You know, Ava Sander, when she was on the show, talked about one of the things that she loves about O'Brien's writing is his Dickens-like way of these incredible secondary characters. And for those of you who love Mercedes, mm. hang in there. You will see her again. It may not be for a great many books, but you will see her again here. Yeah, well, for sure will. That's right. Jack escorts the bosun. You know, he gets up, you know, pulls himself together, takes the bosun and, and the superbs men to the Sophie and leaves them. They're working away on getting this ship back in order, which is a great gift to him. And he realizes, I got to get to the governor's dinner. And therefore, you know, I'm, I'm sort of glad I was interrupted. And he says, but, but, but what a sweet girl. And all of a sudden, he's kind of off and running, thinking about Mercedes. And the next thing you know, he's kind of mindlessly wandering through the back streets. He comes upon the Franciscan church, which I thought was a great kind of way to say, oh, wait, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to be late. I got to get to dinner. And, you know, it sort of brings him back to himself. And he heads rapidly past Mr. Flory's house off to the governor's house here. So, and, and I love this is another one of these great O'Brien scene handovers. Jack's going past Mr. Flory's house. And he says, meanwhile, inside Mr. Flory's house. 
And Mike, inside Mr. Flory's house, Stephen and Mr. Flory himself are sitting down to dinner. But this is not a regular kind of a dinner. This is not a regular kind of a dining room. They're next to a dolphin that they're busy dissecting. And there's another body-shaped object under a sheet. They're discussing the butcher's bill from the action that the Sophie's just had and also speculating on Jack's potential promotion. And there's yet another little comic interlude here as they're both looking around for a sharp blade to cut the roast beef because they think that roast beef's got to be cut thin to taste really good. Um, they don't find one on the table. Stephen reaches out for a catling, a surgical instrument, and finds one. Oh, yeah, underneath this cloth here on top of, ah, yes, the dead woman's body <laughs> under the sheet. And by the way, this is the whole thing that Lister railed against, right? They are, they, they're casually bringing instruments and fingers and hands between the dissecting room and the morgue and the operating theatre. This is what caused infection, but this is all pre-Lister. So they take this catling and use it to shave off a few slices of beef here. Uh, Flory did suggest washing the catling, but Stephen says, oh, I'll just wipe it on the sheet here. They're chatting about the cause of death. Uh, Flory, who's taking the first cut of meat and handing it to the vulture tied up by the leg in the corner of the room, like I said, this is no ordinary dining room, attributes the death... I think he's talking about the death of the woman, not the death of the dolphin here. Right, right. Um, attributes the death to battering before the woman had ended up in the water, talking about amiable weaknesses, follies, and then turns the conversation back to Jack's advancement. I'm like, this is, as, as well as being funny, this is dark. We've got this foreshadowing of the, of the effect of all these weaknesses and follies, We've got the relationship to the story with the praying mantis earlier on. We've got the conversation about the vulture. About maybe Mike, the, the vulture himself, like often happens with O'Brien, is animal personifying a real human character. What do you think? Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think that the vulture is Captain Hart. And, you know, yeah. that, that Jack is continuing to feed small scraps of meat to this vulture with his behavior or his misbehavior. You know, I, I think uh, Hart becomes the vulture, shall we say, the elephant in the room in this and a subsequent conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they carry on speculating then about Jack and how where his conduct has got him. Flory says in this very detached way, well, if you provide a man with horns, he may gore you. Horns in this case meaning cuckolding. Um, and he watches for the reaction from Stephen, who agrees, tosses a piece of gristle to the vulture, because he doesn't respect the vulture as much as Flory does, and the vulture can have some of the leavings, and asks him to speak candidly. Is he talking about what happened to the woman under the sheet, or is he talking about something else, adding that he won't be offended? He's really pushing Flory to say, come on, what's on your mind here? And Flory says that their young friend, which clearly means Jack, whom he, Flory, holds in high regard for this action, has been indiscreet, as has the lady, meaning Molly Hart. Her husband resents it, is too pitiful to ask for a duel, but may try to entrap Jack in some disobedience and court-martial him. Jack's not famous for his strict adherence to the letter of his orders. Some of the senior captains are jealous of Jack's success, despite the hussars that he's had so far, and both the husband and the current First Lord are, as Flory says, vile ranting dogs of Whigs, while Jack is a Tory. So Jack's in tricky political and matrimonial water here. Stephen really appreciates his candour and says that he, Stephen, agrees. He says, There are times when it seems to me that nothing short of a radical ablation of the membrum virile would answer in this case. That is very generally the peccant part, said Mr. Flory. 
and membrum virile or virile if you speak old school Latin, the virile member, the penis, the the the, the gentleman's organ there. And that's what they're talking about. Peccant means offending or having committed sin. And Mike, I think peccant can also mean having disease or causing disease. And we might have to stick a pin in that. Right. If that's not too painful of a metaphor. Uh, <laughs> and come back to it. So, Mike, we've, we've had one little dinner vignette here of people talking about the consequences of the action. We get treated to another in another much more conventional dining room coming next. There is. And I think the vulture's still in the corner, but we don't actually see him in this room. <laughs> right. <laughs> in the minds of the parties. So... Jack's clerk, Richards, is eating at his uncle's house. We remember that his uncle is Jack's prize agent. And, and Richards is telling the tale of the Caca Fuego. And, and we remember Richards. It wasn't very long ago. He was sort of quaking on the deck as action was starting with his eyes popping out. But now in his telling, he was standing in his usual position next to Jack on the quarterdeck, you know, where the enemy always concentrates his fire and he's standing there ready to provide his advice and counsel, you know, and his aunt is saying, you know, oh, did he ask your advice? Oh, you know, and he's, yeah, absolutely he did. And, you know, the, he said that the rigging was falling all about them and that the captain said that he was at a loss and didn't know what to do. And Richards told him to board them in the spoke and you'll have them in five minutes. And he says, but I have to tell you the truth. It actually took us 10, but that... After the battle, where according to Richards, he had dirked the Spanish captain's clerk, you know, I got my equal here, that Aubrey had come back to him in tears with tears in his eyes and said, Richard, we ought all to be very grateful to you. And that Richards modestly shrugged it off, saying that he was just doing what any taught captain's clerk would do. And he says, I very nearly said to him, I tell you what, Goldilocks, for we call him Goldilocks in the service, you know, in much the same way as they call me Hellfire Davy or Thundering Richards. Just you rate me midshipman among, <laughs> aboard the Cacafuego when she's bought in by government and will cry quits. Perhaps I may tomorrow, for I feel I have the genius of command. <laughs> I am just once again rolling on the floor here <laughs> listening to this conversation. Really, really funny. What a contemporary person might call a big old troll. <laughs> right, right. Jack Aubrey right there. Um, Richards goes on then to speculate, now that he's got his audience's attention, Hellfire Davy, um, he goes on to speculate how much the government might pay for the Caca Fuego. And this is a calculation that happens a lot in the minds of men who were part of the prize money pool, as, as we've heard before, and as we'll hear again. An excellent sum. His uncle says it would earn Aubrey £5,000 plus head money. And for Richards, £263, 14 shillings and tuppence, if, big if, the Caca Fuego is in fact bought by the government. And Richard says, well, hold on, what, what's all this if? And the uncle explains that a certain person that does the admiralty buying, he's meaning heart, and that person's lady is not over shy so that another certain person may cut up horrid rough. Adding in a little quote from Romeo and Juliet here, oh, Goldilocks, Goldilocks, wherefore aren't thou Goldilocks? And this starts out as just a kind of good-natured roast of Jack and his sexual misconduct. But the women really pile into Molly Hart at this point. They're not having it. They say, oh, it's all the woman's fault. It was she set her bonnet at him. The minx, the hussy, they knew the driver of the post chase. 
She should be flogged through the town at the cart's tail, and don't I wish I had the whip, the nasty cat, the wretch. And A, th this is very funny. Uh, B, they use some really, really interesting phraseology. They talk about Yardo the parish bull. Jack's been playing playing the sire amongst the amongst the cattle. I'm really, really uncomfortable with the idea of that metaphor. Right. Jack's acting like the parish bull. He's acting like, you know, like he has rights over all the women in the harbour here. I think it's funny as well how the women all set about Molly Hart. It, it's funny and it has a true ring to it. I'm still a bit uneasy, to be honest. It, it, it smacks a bit of an easy score against women in general. It smacks a little bit, I might even say, of misogyny. It would be different if we'd had lots of the first-person perspective of the women involved, especially Molly. It would be different if we'd heard more about this community of women, but we just get them kind of sniping cattily at each other. Um, and we get it juxtaposed with the mantis a few chapters ago. We get it juxtaposed with the dead female meat on the dissecting table. Uh, I, I, I wonder how O'Brien can come back for this. I wonder if there's some way he could write a better arc for women characters in it. I don't know. Some future book, maybe, Mike. What do you think? You, you think maybe, right, where women feature more prominently and are very independent and, you know, perhaps more Jane Austen-like? Is that... <laughs> wonder if he could pull that off, right? <laughs> and th this picture of the women is further compounded by the ongoing discussion of Molly Hart's reputation. We hear that her reputation had suffered even as her looks improved. The governor's wife had received her as coldly as she dared. Soldiers and sailors had gathered around her and Lady Warren while, as the text says, their wives, sisters and even sweethearts sat in dowdy greyish heaps at a distance, mute and looking with pursed lips at the scarlet dressed, almost hidden amongst the flocking uniforms. And at this big social gathering, the men fall back when Jack appears. And Jack's reflecting on the sight of Molly Hart and this gathering. And even he piles on. He thinks, yes, yeah, she is something of a whore standing there with her head held high. It's no coincidence that the, the, the dress is scarlet red. He knows a little bit about what the women are saying about her. And then he's even more drawn to her. She is kind of available, but she's available only for the successful in Mahon. And with the Cacafuego moored alongside the Sophie, Jack is pretty happy to take his pleasure with Molly Hart as the just rewards for his success. And, ugh, O'Brien, you've, you've, you've got some fixing to do here. Right, right, right. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, I, I remember we were always schooled about, you know, don't don't look for your uh, rewards now. You'll get them in heaven. And I think maybe, uh, maybe you know, Jack, uh, well, we'll just see. Maybe Jack was looking for too early a reward on on this great victory and uh, could have perhaps played it a different way here. Well, now we get to this lovely moment in a way where, where Molly's sitting down at her harp. We're back in the music room. Remember the music room in the governor's house at Port Mahon? Oh. Does that ring any bells? You know, for people who've read the canon over and over again, this is, you know, this harkens back to our opening line in this book. We're right back where it started. And Stephen comes in. He he, he kind of gets there. He's walking in right behind Jack. Uh, O'Brien says he's looking respectable, apart from having forgotten his shirt. <laughs> so, you know, I, I get this Einstein kind of impression of, of Stephen sometimes. But uh, and then Jack asks Stephen to sit with him. And I think Stephen panics a little bit, but then looks around and realizes, oh, crap, there's nowhere else to sit here. And there's almost a little bit of a humorous throwback to their first meeting sitting next to each other. And Stephen says, well, 
I suppose I shall have to, the room being so crowded. Yet I had hoped to enjoy this concert. It's the last we'll hear from sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh God, I got to sit next to Jack. I really wanted yeah, to yeah. enjoy this. And there's no room for my elbows and he's going to beat the time and he's going to sing all the right. <laughs> Exactly. Ho- hopefully we'll, we, won't, we won't be thinking about doing one another at the end of it. But, but. Stephen also asked, what's on offer? What's on the program? And Ian, there might be a little nugget in here, right? Music. There might be. There might be. So we hear that one of the pieces is by Boccherini, that it's some kind of a cello piece. And in a moment after that, as the piece starts, we get this description. The first violin gave a nod, brought down his bow, and in a moment they were all dashing away, filling the room with a delightful complexity of sound, preparing for the cello's meditative song. And Mike, it's not dead on the right description, but I'm thinking to myself, could this just possibly, possibly, possibly be the moment in the text when somebody got inspired to choose the famous Boccherini nocturnal street music of Madrid, which is our theme tune, which is the tune that most people now associate with Boccherini and Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. Could this be the moment that somebody on the Peter Weir movie thought, ah, maybe it's this piece of Boccherini? I don't think there's anything else in the canon that points us towards the Nocturnal Street music as a classic Jack and Stephen piece. In many ways, it's not because it's not a duet for violin and cello, although you could play it as such. But I was really happy to sort of see this moment. I'd never seen it until this last read through. So I was kind of feeling very happy about that. And Stephen, I think, is also happy remembering their first concert together. Jack mentions other concerts that are coming up, but Stephen is on top of the news here. He says, but but we're leaving for Malta. The secretary told me that the orders were currently writing. And amidst this little happy social moment in the music room here, Jack is not happy. Yeah. Now, Mike, I, I don't know what Jack's going to do to resolve his unhappiness. Maybe he's going to go looking for a glass of Madeira. Maybe he's going to go find some toasted cheese. Maybe our listeners should do the same. And join us when we come back after the break. What do you say? Oh, I think that's a great idea. So you might have noticed that we're coming up to our 100th episode. And to celebrate that, we're going to be doing an episode dedicated to answering your questions. So if there's a question you'd like to ask, head over to facebook.com forward slash lovers whole or on Twitter at whole lovers, H-O-L-E-L-U-B-B-E-R-S and Ask us the questions that you've been wondering about for the first 99 episodes of the show. That's right. You can ask us anything serious or frivolous, personal or professional. We'll do our best to answer as many as we can. In the words of our heroes, there's not a moment to lose. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your Madeira with the yellow label, your toasted cheese. And and in true O'Brien fashion, we rejoin the two of them, Stephen and Jack, not on the way to Malta, not in Malta, but on the way back from Malta. We've just jumped right ahead here. Stephen says he was disappointed in the place. Jack says he thought they took really great care of the ship. Um, except for the fact that they didn't have enough sweeps on hand. The only disappointment he thought was about pullings. But he thinks they were well-treated, well-entertained, but he himself is not feeling very well. And Stephen examines him 
and then concludes and gives him his diagnosis. He says, it's, it's not an old wound per se, but it is a wound. One of your lady friends has been too liberal with her favors. And uh-huh. Jack is horrified. He, he's, he's never contracted a little something from one of his lady friends before. And here we get back to that other definition of the peckin' part. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so apparently that peckin' part uh, received a little something from Molly Hart here. Well, Stephen places him on a strict diet and goes to fix a dose for him. You know, and he's, he's doing this as the ship's kind of rolling a bit. And he, like Stephen is prone to do, makes the dose especially nauseous using supplies that he brought for himself. And Ian, they make mention of specific supplies here, which are really pretty revolting here. You, you've had a little discussion about this recently on the gun room. Tell us more about what Stephen has bought and is mixing in here with these medicines. That's right. One of the things that he's using here is Arsafedida, which is a fetid, resinous, gum it's from south asia and from india in particular um it really stinks it's used medicinally to show patients that they're really being physicked as a little kind of placebo effect it's also a cooking ingredient and interestingly for those of you who go on the gun room mailing server there's been a great chat lately about asafedida i myself have seen it in asian supermarkets never had the courage to actually cook with it and uh, with his kind permission, I want to quote Brian Threlkeld of The Gun Room, who gave this really great description. He says, it's an ingredient used sparingly. A pinch is tossed into hot oil at the start of cooking or otherwise incorporated early in preparation because the repulsive properties of the odors can dissipate through cooking. And it really makes the flavors of the dish pop, bringing out the complexities in the main ingredients. And I love what Brian says here next. Um, in that respect, it's like fish sauce, a condiment that is otherwise a staple of Southeast Asian cuisine, not something that you would really like to taste on its own, but crucial in creating, as Brian says, a gastronomic whole greater than the sum of the parts. So really great description. Thank you, Brian. Best wishes. He also asked us to mention when we got in touch that it's also known by his Hindi name of Hing. And I can remember my mum going shopping to buy Hing for a very special Indian recipe that she was cooking when we were kids. But that was a long time ago. <sighs> so we have stinky ingredients in the special potion made up for Jack to cure him of his little uh, little dose here. Yeah, he's got this asafetida. And then the, the other substance that Stephen uses is a substance that beavers secrete into their urine to mark their territory. So... You know, I just can't imagine quite quite the recipe Stephen is putting together here. Certainly, if, if sailors think, you know, well, if one will do me, you know, that t- 10 will do me yeah. even better, mixing them this way is probably going to cure them of that <laughs> inclination. Sure. Stephen finishes mixing this up and taking his drafts back, and, and he heads to the gun room for dinner, and he reports that the captain is not going to be able to join them tomorrow night, as as was planned, because he's recovering from his wounds now, there in the gun room, we're introduced to a new character, and we learn a little bit about what Jack was talking about when he said that Pullings was a little bit of a disappointment from this Malta trip here. So now we've got a, a couple of different pronunciations here. For those of you who listen to Patrick Tall, as I do, we, you know, we're talking about Mr. Dalziel. But Ian, you've got a little bit more intelligence on this name here. Tell us a little bit about what this may actually sound like. I, I don't know about intelligence, but it's a name that I would have pronounced DL. There have been a few famous DLs. It is an anglicization of a Scots Gaelic name. 
many names of that kind have got old combinations of consonants in them that get pronounced slightly oddly. There was, for example, there was a very famous principled and rebellious member of the House of Commons from Scotland uh, from 1962 till 2005. His name was Tam Diel. His name was pronounced the same way. He didn't have the Z in the name, but it's exactly the same name and the same origin. So it's up to you, really. If you know somebody who's called this, then you can ask them how they prefer to be called. You can go with the other version. Um, in any case, this Mr. DL has been sent as a first lieutenant rather than offering a promotion to Pullings. As you say, Mike, that's a disappointment. All the crew had been rooting for Pullings. Pulling for Pullings, as you might say. Right. But this guy, DL, was the Admiral's cousin who'd been sent with a private note saying that Pullings would be kept in mind and mentioned to the Admiralty, which sounds a bit like a kiss from your sister, really, doesn't it? Right. DL was very conciliatory, but he didn't need to be because... Tom Pullings himself, as we're going to see all the way through his character arc in the books here, is this very unassuming person, the most unassuming creature on earth, painfully diffident anywhere except on the enemy's deck. Which is something for us all to respect, I think. Diel had, however, never seen action. He was really curious to find out about the captains and his wounds. Was he painfully cut up, he asks. Stephen tells him about the sword and the pistol and pike wounds and how he, Stephen, had found a slug that Jack had received at the Battle of the Nile. And as DL is absorbing all of this, Marshall, the master, also says, well, not not only that, he'll be fretting because we're not on our cruising grounds. And everybody wants to be back on the cruise. They're all certain that Jack's got more of this great intelligence on maybe a parcel of galleons carrying gold. The Sophies are all now really well bonded as a crew. Everyone's really well trained. Everyone's super alive to the idea of making money through taking prizes. And this, in the end, is going to be helpful because this new Lieutenant DL is no seaman. He's a far cry from being a James Dillon. The crew then might get him out of a few blunders as they're sailing west. They're sailing west through battering seas and also maddening calms. They're really eager to hear the news from London because don't forget, they expect that Jack's dispatch has gone due west from the desk of Captain Hart. They're looking out for the official recognition of their victory in the Gazette. They're looking out for the news of Jack's promotion to post-captain and maybe advancement for everybody else. And Mike, what's rating for them as they get around the next cape? Well, it's interesting. You know, they're they're rounding Cape Mola. They make their number. And the crew, knowing, you know, this is the way Jack operates, they've already got the empty water butts up all over the decks. They're ready to be filled the moment they arrive so they can head out to start cruising the next morning. Jack gives the order to his new lieutenant, who turns around and realizes it's already been done. (laughs) And so, you know, is, is very philosophical about that. But as they come into the harbor, as they're just coming in, all of a sudden from out from behind the island, Hart's barge pulls alongside. You know, it's, it surprises everybody. It defies protocol. Usually a person is going to be good enough to let them more or at least give them a few minutes to prepare for the visit of this commandant coming aboard. But Jack's in a good mood. He's expecting great things here. He welcomes Hart aboard. Hart stares at the messy decks. Um, the new lieutenant's little fat dog comes up and pees in front of Hart. You know, it's all <laughs> looking a mess. And, and Hart is just dressing Aubrey down, saying that the decks look like a whopping pawn shop, not the decks of a king's sloop. But Jack, seeing that Hart has some message with an admiralty wrapper of orders under his arm, assumes it's his promotion, doesn't take the bait, invites Hart to his cabin. And the crew is anxiously kind of listening in at the skylight. 
as Hart continues to dress Jack down. And the crew who love Jack, but they're, they're having a little fun. It's always good to get your boss hearing him copying it a little bit. But then they turn really solemn when they hear there's going to be no more crews. Word spreads through the ship that Hart's telling him they used up all their cruise time going to Malta, and they're now going to convey the mail packet to Gibraltar. Cacafuego was not bought into the service. It was sold to the Moors, as they said, for 18 pence and a pound of shit. There was nothing in the Gazette about their action. Hart says that the Cacafuego was not a regular ship, that her captain had no commission. Everybody is furious, including the new lieutenant, who is at least really shocked by this unbelievable treatment here. Unbelievable to anybody except those who have a candid view of what's really going on in Hart's brain at the moment. Like, right. I'm so surprised. I really like the change of perspective here as well. Jack's had a number of sit-downs with Captain Hart, and we've had them described to us in first person. We've been right there with Jack. They're mostly uncomfortable. Um, and maybe O'Brien is thinking it would be boring, repetitive, to have yet another face-to-face kind of reaming out from Captain Hart here. So to make this one memorable and a bit special... O'Brien places us outside and we're with the crew listening through the boards and bulkheads and we're hearing their commentary. And I I really like that. He often does that with action as well. He shows us naval action from a bunch of different perspectives to make the writing very interesting. And I really enjoyed it. Nice. Now, he's going to carry on and report this to Stephen. So he goes below and says, not only are they going to convoy this mail packet, which is a really old, slow tub of a vessel, some part of some shady deal between Hart and the guy who owns the house that the Harts live in. Not only that, the Sophie will carry the mail, give it to the packet once they reach Gibraltar. They're not allowed to go on or communicate with the shore at all. Hart's really wound this up tight to take away all of Jack's opportunities for recovery and advancement here. Right. Hart, as we find out, we shouldn't be surprised about this, but it's a real heartbreaker. Hart had not, in fact, sent Jack's letter to Lord Keith by any of the ships that had already headed out. Jack's pretty sure that his letter is in the greasy sack that he's got here with a covering letter describing all of Hart's fancied irregularities about the Cacafuego and her captain and her circumstances. And Stephen warns Jack, reflecting back on his conversation with Flory earlier on, Hart is trying to catch you out in some kind of disobedience and ruin your career. He's saying, Jack, don't be blinded by your anger. And Mike, this is a really big undercut for all of us who are sitting here reading on Team Jack. We're really, really pissed off with this. We were having all that enjoyment, all that anticipation, enjoying all the approbation of colleagues, and it's all gone. Yeah. Uh, Well... Jack says, you know, he's 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 not going to take the bait here. He's he's you know he's not going to react like that. But he picks up his fiddle. His hands are shaking. He says, "I don't even think I could play a scale right now." And he's sitting there, and his mind is rerunning all this seniority slipping away from him. He thinks about all these other people who have just been made post captain before him, and now will always be on the list of seniority ahead of him. He's also thinking about the rumors for peace and that, you know, he may not get another opportunity for another action. He worries that Lord Keith's, you know, prophecy about his never being promoted may have been right here. And Stephen is watching. He sees Jack's face redden as he tucks his fiddle under his chin. His mouth tightens, his pupils contract, and there's this great crack as Jack accidentally breaks his fiddle's neck. 
a fiddle he's just crushed about because he's known it all of his life. And, and given the role that music plays in the canon and the way Jack and Stephen, you know, use it to express emotions, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried this isn't a good sign. But I know, Ian, you can, you know, you've got first person <laughs> yeah, experience I, I, here. I, I broke <laughs> my cello in a much more minor and, uh, and insignificant way than this, but I was ready to throw up. It's just the most horrible thing. And reading this paragraph gives me the creeps every time I read it. Like, I, I'm not sure it's possible to to break the neck of a violin just just from the strength of your grip, especially if you haven't got a modern shoulder rest. But wh- whatever, the significance of it as a, a damage to something that Jack cares about deeply, the significance of it as taking away yes. one of the means that Jack can live his emotional life with Stephen. Oh, it's grim. And. Meanwhile, the crew have cottoned on to the situation here and they're taking it out on harp in their own way. They've got a little bit of 18th century trolling going on here. They're singing a new song, this time not penned by Moet. They're singing a a shanty, a a capstan shanty of their own writing about Hart, the one-eyed son of a blue French fart, talking about Hart telling his missus about seeing the bold Sophie's commander with his fiddle-dee-dee. Yeah, it's a fiddle-dee-dee that uh, got him into trouble. As they're singing this song, they're sailing past the Amelia. Now, Mike, I think the Amelia was an actual ship. It was the captured French Preserpine, a 38-gun frigate. Interestingly, Mike, I think you discovered that this was one of the ships in the Battle of Tory Island back in 1798, as Paddy told us about just a few weeks ago. Right. And the Amelia's rigging is full of men carrying their hats, and DL sends Babington for the captain. Jack comes on deck just as the first cheer rings out. And Mike, we get another little off-hats moment here yes after they finish the cheers jack calls for three cheers for the amelia which the sophies give like heroes even though they're still working the ship and the amelia returns one more i'm like this is really fascinating o'brien's not going to let us settle down either to uniform disaster or to uniform hubris for jack aubrey there's this very i think realistic mature you know you, you get some glory and some strokes and some great news and you also get some setbacks and you've got to live with the setbacks messed up and in amongst everyday life. And you can't get too attached to the idea of your glory and you can't get too attached to the idea of your setbacks as being permanent. Um, it reminded me a bit of the, the Rudyard Kipling line, if you, know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. I'm not sure that O'Brien would have shared Kipling's intention or the general sentiment of the rest of the poem. Right. Um, but I think the two authors are expressing the similar idea here that, yeah, real life, you're going to have some ups and some downs and they might both come at the same time. Nice. Very true. Well, we, we have this, as you say, this this mixture here. And, and the crew's certainly feeling that as well. Despite this handsome compliment that the Amelia has given them, they're still feeling very grieved. And they're often calling out, give us back our 37 days, you know, certainly below decks and sometimes above decks. Some of the folks who had rejoined the ship, you know, kind of come back from the hospital. They had smuggled alcohol aboard. And, and all this resentfulness has kind of made the hierarchy all but disappear here. And when the captain of the foretop and both bosun's mate turn up drunk, Jack has kind of had it. Uh, once and for all. He disrates one of the bosun mates. He makes Alfred King. We remember Alfred King, uh, the the mute, big yeah. man that came aboard with Richards. Yeah. He makes him the new bosun's mate who is now going to deliver punishment in a real grating rigged at the gangway. Jack has decided, you know, he's going to stop this drunkenness and restore discipline 
whatever it takes. And this is clearly not who Jack usually is in terms of punishment, but this is not a situation that calls for kind of, you know, business as usual. Yeah. So they're settling along here. We we heard before that the packet boat is a bit of a slug. The Sophie can sail twice as fast as the packet. So everybody's spending their time looking inshore. Every time they go around a cove or a bay, Jack's got the ability to to nip inshore, see what's happening, and then sail back into the offing to hook up with the packet boat. Stephen points out that they've got to this region where they're at the limit of Catalan speech and has some rather uncharitable things to say about the, the, the Algarabia dialect, the Moorish dialect that people speak further west and further south. He goes on with this philosophizing theme. He says, Strabo, a Greek philosopher and historian of about, what, 60 BC to 24 AD, wrote that the ancient Irish regarded it as an honor to be eaten by their relatives, a form of burial that kept the soul in the family. I'm like, it's a very, very dark and weird comment here by Stephen. He carries on then comparing Strabo to an even more ancient Greek scholar, geographer, and astronomer. and Meanwhile, Jack is calling for a glass here and he's looking in shore and he says, oh, go tell me, tell me some more about this guy, Strabo. And Jack realizes that he spotted a rider, a rider on horseback heading into a hamlet at a bay. And as he follows the line of where the rider is headed to, he sees ships at anchor a quarter of a mile south of the village. One of them is a deeply laden merchantman. And Jack watches as these ships weigh anchor and run themselves on shore. Ooh. Now, he knows his orders are going to be, don't cut them out. You're supposed to be escorting the packet boat. But he also knows with his extra speed, he's got room to make a few maneuvers and still catch up. He also knows in the back of his mind how much Lord Keith wanted him to destroy the enemy's coastwide trade. So, waiting until evening, a few miles off the Cape, he has fire barrels prepared and goes down into the cabin with Stephen to copy some music. He complains about the hemi-demi-semi-quavers in these duets. Hemi-demi-semi-quavers, very, very short notes. And Mike, as, as we're going to hear, the exploits that we're about to go through here with these boats on shore, very, very precisely based on the real events of what happened to Cochrane and his crew in their 1801 cruise. But we'll we'll pick it up as we get to it. Yeah, I, I love how O'Brien, as you say, takes these exact events and weaves them into our story. You know, of course, with Cochrane, there was no Dylan. But here, there very much is. And Jack is telling Stephen that he's been thinking about Dylan all day how much he misses him and, and was probably reminded of him because Stephen was talking about Irishmen. And Jack says, you know, you would never have thought Dylan was Irish. Yeah. He was never drunk. He didn't call people out all the time. He spoke like a Christian. He was a gentleman. He never bullied. And then Jack realizes what he's saying and who he's saying it to. And he begs Stephen's pardon. He says, I say these damn things. I regret it extremely and, and Jack, you know, is so upset by what he said here about Irishmen and, and realize he's, you know, he's besmirching Stephen here. He calls for some of his very best wine, a Madeira with the yellow labels. You know, we've, we've alluded to this several times, kind of a standard in the canon here. And he tells Stephen that he produces it as a sin offering, conscious of his offense. And, and Ian, you've, you've got a little experience with this Madeira, right? Yeah, interesting. I, I love this description of it as being dry and unctuous. And unctuous is a very fancy word. It might mean kind of rich and fatty. Uh, it might also mean excessively or ingratiatingly flattering. I don't think he's talking literally about there being fat in Madeira. Right. But it's true. It's got a very high acid content and also a very high sugar content. That's how it lasts so long in the bottle. 
and uh, it's delicious. I got a bottle of 1969 Cercial Madeira from my brothers and sisters for my 50th, 69 being the year of my birth. Uh, and I can confirm it was dry and unctuous, really, really sharp and fruity, but also got this real rich background to it. Delicious. Jack often notices that he's made these rather awkward, thoughtless comments about people's background, especially about Irishness, about being brought by the Lee. And he's aware that he had vexed Dylan often enough. And he says that even a well-bred man, unlike him, can make these mistakes as Dylan himself did once, although he's sure Dylan didn't mean it. And he's talking here about when Dylan had used the word commercial when talking about prizes. And that had caused a bit of pain for Jack. And uh, that's why he's happy about tonight. Jack saying that he's happy about tonight, but they're interrupted. It's reported that Ricketts had swallowed a musket ball. And Stephen returns in five minutes saying that while he couldn't treat him with physic, he had an, an emetic that answered. Uh, in other words, you know, he had made Ricketts throw up. And, and this is just this short pause in the midst of Jack kind of talking about Dylan here. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but uh, I, I think that uh, maybe it's another example, like one that Jack is about <laughs> to step into, of not being able to do things one way so you find another you know, however, sometimes that these things that you do, these workarounds are pretty unpleasant. So it's better not to do stupid things in the first place. Like, you know, don't hold musket balls in your mouth on a dare or don't try to find a way around your orders with a commandant who's out to get you court-martialed. <laughs> Wise words. If only we could implant them in the brain of Jack Aubrey. So much of what's going to happen in the rest of the canon huh, might not arise. Jack says, thinking about the action that's going on to take hold of these um, these merchant ships. He says Dylan would be very pleased by tonight's action. Jack's orders won't allow him to cut them out, so he's going to burn them while he waits for the packet to come up. There's no time to be lost. There's no way anyone could call this commercial. He's not taking prizes. He's seeking out the enemy's shipping and burning and destroying it. In the dark, the jolly boat and the cutter carry the men five miles out to their prey. Stephen and the bosun try to watch for them in the dark and talk about how time seems to go by like days or weeks when you're watching from a distance here. For the men in the boats, it goes by like Horndean Fair, meaning very quickly. I don't know why that's a reference to a, a, a village north of Portsmouth in Hampshire, but who knows. They finally see firing. It's in a different direction than where they were looking. Mr. Watt the bosun suggests that maybe the Captain Aubrey has created a distraction. And after some time, there's shouting, three deep red glows on shore. And the third of those grows enormously a ship full of olive oil ablaze it lights up the bay the village they see the boats pulling back to the ships lit by this big column of fire stephen's worried about the animals they're all flying and moving towards the fire thinking that it's daylight it will attract every living thing he says thinking about the bats who would be out at night the water begins to roll making it hard for the boats to get back but the wind doesn't allow for the sophie to head for them sophie's got to stay offshore where she is or she'll get embayed and Mike, this whole episode, again, is precisely Cochrane. Immediately in the time after the taking of the Gamo, Cochrane and the Speedy were sent to escort the packet to Gibraltar. As they escorted the packet, they came across these three merchantmen. The merchantmen drove themselves on shore. They set fire to the merchantmen. One loaded with olive oil caught fire in exactly the way that's described here. And I'm just mentioning that because there's lots of the rest of the Cochrane arc that's going to continue for the rest of the book here. Unknown to them... The same flames were lighting up the decks of a squadron of French ships eight miles offshore. And Mike, this is a little reminder of that kind of God's eye view that we got of the Cacafuego a few chapters ago. Light 
from one place is illuminating at the same time something a long way away that we can't see in the same frame of view. Three French ships, the Formidable, an 80-gun ship of the line with the flag of Rear Admiral Lenoir. The Indomptable, an 80-gun ship. The Desay, a 74-gun ship under Captain Christy Pagnier, a splendid sailor we hear. And the Murion, a 38-gun frigate, although she's much further offshore. They head in to see what's afoot. They tack in succession. They're being handled beautifully by professional officers and prime seamen. And Mike, again, this is absolutely spot on. These three ships commanded by these three captains were absolutely in this part of the Mediterranean on absolutely this date. And we're going to find out more about that just as we're going to find out about Captain Keaton the Superb mm, in just a few pages time. Wow. When the Sophie finally sees these French ships much later than usual because they've been concentrating on their boats getting back. So they, they don't see them until just after the boats have returned. But the crew is kind of greeting these French ships with joy. They haven't sort of sussed out who they are yet. Everybody is convinced that these are the galleons, you know, part of Jack's secret intelligence that are bringing sort of the gold of the new world back, you know, and are going to make their fortunes. The front two are hull up. And Jack looks at them, realizes now that they are French, but is thinking to himself, they're not looking like ships in a hurry. And, and it's a squadron, and probably they're not going to waste more than an hour chasing after a little merchant brig of no importance, which he hopes the Sophie appears to be to them. But he does see how fast they sail and how well they're handled and hopes that, however, with the weather gauge, he can get just far enough past them that by the time anything kind of gets realized, the Admiral's going to have recalled them here. But then the lookout calls that the frigate has taken the packet. And Jack waits. Instead of getting out of here, he's waiting. And after five minutes, signals do break out on the Admiral's ship, just like he thought they might. But they're not recalling him. They're telling them to say. And it stops heading inshore. It changes sails, quickly turns towards Jack. And two other French ships start for the Sophie as well. It's clear the packet has now identified the Sophie to the French. And now we're in real trouble here. Jack says he's got everything spread, every stitch of sail, everyone's doing their job, nobody's needing orders. He's looking up, though, at the threadbare admiralty sails and comparing them with these beautifully well-cut sails that the the French ships have got. He wishes that he'd bent the new good-quality top sails that he'd bought for the Sophie out of his own purse. The wind dies, and he orders the sweeps out. And Mike, there's, there's a little uh, Chekhov's sweep moment here because way back in chapter two, we heard about how the Sophie was equipped with these sweeps, which is a fairly archaic practice. We heard that they hadn't come back from Malta with quite the full complement of sweeps either, but these sweeps, these great big oars are out. The Desai is pursuing them, firing her bow chasers. The wind dies completely and they work, even though they're short fall sweeps, together as a crew to try and propel the Sophie along. Stephen sees that this is not just for the for the hands. There's an officer at every sweep, and he himself jumps into an open seat and pulls on a sweep. In 40 minutes, all the skin is gone from his hand. Wow. I, I don't know why Jack thinks that they need extra motivation, but he notices that it's mealtime, and he thinks, well, I'm going to help everybody out here. A double ration of cheese for everyone, since there's not going to be anything hot for a while. And Mike, we get this really slightly kind of sideways remark from the person who says, I fancy there will be something uncommon hot coming soon right 
right? This is this is the guy, remember, who was arguing with the bosun that Jack's going to get them all killed or captured a short while back, right? Yeah. The wind, you know, they're sweeping hard. They, you know, made some distance. They've made some gains here. And then the wind starts back. And in 20 minutes, the desire is, you know, made all that back up again. And Jack realizes we've got to move a lot faster. He orders the sweeps in and the guns overboard. And, and O'Brien tells us the gunner walks slowly like a man walking along the edge of a cliff by willpower alone as he starts, you know, kind of springing the cap squares and getting his team together. They're all looking kind of anxious and frightened as they're holding this cannon in place, waiting for the roll, and then, you know, urge this beautiful, shining, gleaming gun overboard. And just as the cannon splashes, a ball from the Desai lands 10 yards away, and the men now get it, and the other guns go over much faster. Yeah. Oh, again, great, great jeopardy here. Real danger for the crew. The Sophie's moving faster. The Desai puts a hole in her top gallant sail. The next two fall short. So, Mike, we're within gun range, but we've managed to escape without any damage so far. Jack thinks that he can come about twice as fast as the Desai, even though there's not very much wind, not as much as the Sophie likes. He turns, fills on the larboard tack before the Desai even begins her following turn. When the Frenchman begins to turn, Stephen gets sent below and then sees, as Sophie prepares to begin her reverse turn, her turn back, he sees the Desai's broadside go off. All but two of the 36-pound balls miss. Another really, really lucky escape. Those that do hit go through the rigging. They slow her down, but a puff of air gets her going again before the Desai's first manoeuvre is complete. Sophie's gained a quarter of a mile with this manoeuvre, but Jack knows it won't happen again. The Desai is firing. The Sophie's jigging and turning. She's losing speed each time she turns. The Formidable is on the other tack to keep the Sophie from running away. The Andomptable is over on the other side of the scene here, setting up to do the same thing. Ships are firing at her. Jack has the stores started over the side and the water pumped. Now a shot finally rings home. Sophie's hull is hit. She gets patched without taking on too much water. Well done to the, to the carpenter. All the anchors and spars except the kedge now go over. Mike, it's real, real desperation stakes here. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're watching Jack, and I, and I love this because Jack's mind is always working here. And he decides, you know, if we bear up and turn quickly, you know, we can run right between the French, put the wind on our quarter and try to reach Gibraltar. If we can survive their broadside, you know, we're we're really light now and we're going to have the wind just where we want it. And he gives the orders to his lieutenant, but the crew has already started. You know, they're already running into place before the lieutenant can turn. And watching the French ship, you know, Jack just times this surprise turn to the second, gives the order one of the ships, the French ships, fires, but their gunnery is not as good as the Desai, and she fires where the Sophie was. The Desai is a little concerned that if she fires you know, exactly the way she wants to, some of her balls may actually skip along and hit the Admiral. So she's kind of held her shots back a bit, and boom, the Sophie is through the line, stunning sails set. She gains a mile in the first five minutes. And, you know, the Desai fires another broadside, but only one ball hits. And all that does is take out the elm tree pump. And Jack is thinking, we've done it. We've done it. And he sees a signal set of signal flags break out on the Admiral's ship. And the Desai turns into the wind to chase the Sophie. Oh, man. 
you know, Jack kind of looks around. He realizes everybody is doing everything right, but that Sophie, even with her studying sales set, can do at best seven knots while the side can run over eight, even without her studying sales. And then O'Brien tells us when they realize that the Desai is not even going to set her studying sales, the Sophie's hearts died within them. And Mike, their fates are really looking like they're sealed here. It's only 40 minutes past 10 in the morning. The wind is unlikely to die that afternoon. Darkness is too far away. So the ideas of fleeing and hiding somehow are not really available to the Sophie. She's stuck with the fate that she's got right now. Jack sees this. And Mike, I like how this description is very unemotional. Like you might expect this to be everybody's fears and anxieties and tensions and rivalries all coming to the surface, but it's very calm, very matter of fact. Jack goes to his cabin and asks to be called if anything, whatever occurs. He calls for Dr. Maturin and then also asks Mr. Watt, the bosun, for a couple of fathoms of log line and three or four belaying pins. He's going to use those things to wrap up the lead-covered signal book, the secret papers and the mail pouch. So he's going to put all of those over the side before the Sophie's finally taken. He puts on his best coat. And when you're being taken prisoner, it's great to be able to advertise that you're an officer. That might get you certain privileges. He puts his commission in his pocket. And Mike, there's this really chilling note all the way back to the very beginning uh, with his orders and his commission reading, hereof nor you nor any of you may fail as you will answer the contrary at your peril. Mm. Well, here's, here's the peril that he's now open to here. Stephen comes in and we never really get any sign of how Stephen is taking all of this he seems to take Jack's lead and he is also being quite matter of fact Jack says we're going to be taken or sunk in the next half hour Stephen says just so Jack tells him to bring anything that he values telling him how prisoners are often robbed he says he was taken in the Leander they took the surgeon's instruments before he could operate on the crew so Stephen goes to pick up his instruments and Jack reminds him to bring his purse and Stephen goes oh yeah Oh, yeah, money. That might be important, too. So on deck, Jack's surprised to see how fast the 74 has come up. You know, he asked the lookout if there's any ships ahead, you know, kind of hoping to himself, oh, my gosh, please tell me, you know, half the Mediterranean fleet from Britain is here. But there's nothing. And then he tells, you know, he tells his lieutenant, look, he shows him the package. If anything happens to me, you know, you toss this over at the last minute. So you know, the men are quiet, as you say, Ian. Everybody's putting on their best clothes. Everybody's finding their officers and they're entrusting them with any objects that they hope to preserve. And, and I love this. You know, O'Brien tells us some of the different ones. Babington, for example, has a carved whale's tooth. Lukak, uh, you know, Bondin's cousin, has a Sicilian bull's penis. So once more, you know, here we are in moral jeopardy, but, uh, you know, Brian can insert a penis again in this chapter to remind us that this is what got us here so, to some extent. And and Jack wonders, you know, why they haven't fired for the last 20 minutes. You know, the guy is, is pulling up on them. It's now within musket range. And then he realizes, you know, we're about to be riddled with grape shot. He drives his package straight into the sea. And as the Desai orders the broadside, Jack takes the wheel. He feels the life of the Sophie under his fingers. And he heaves strongly on the wheel when the Desai brings her guns to bear. The Sophie's main top gallant mask and foretopsail yard come down almost together, along with all these blocks and ropes and splinters. The grape shot strikes her bell 
And there's this silence. The round shot had missed her stern, but her sails and rigging are completely wrecked. And the next round would destroy her entirely. Clue up, called Jack, continuing the turn that brought the Sophie into the wind. Bonden, strike the colors. Oh my gosh. What, wow. what a turnaround from the previous chapter. Right. No, we don't have Bonden striking the colors on the Caco Fuego. He's striking the colors oh. on the Sophie. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. And- and, and and by the way, this is once again exactly what happened to Cochrane and the Speedy after they captured the Cacafuego. Exactly the same friendships, exactly the same situation, exactly the same officers, you know. Remarkable, really remarkable jinking and ducking and diving. But in the end, the inevitable happened. Yeah. And and it's funny, you know, if even if we didn't know Cochrane's history, you know, we can't say that we haven't been warned by O'Brien all the way through here. You know, it's fascinating to still see these issues with Dylan, even after his death, still playing into things and how it's affecting Jack and his decisions. We can still see that Jack and Dylan, while they you know, they were certainly different men, they were very, very similar in, in so many ways. You know, like Dylan, Jack's here, you know, he's turned, you know, his troubled times into action. And, and to yeah. some extent, you know, it, it did Dylan in, to some extent, it's done Jack in too a little bit. Yeah. And I, I'd really love to know, I'd love to have a quick conversation with Jack before he goes aboard the French ships to say, you know, assuming they get the chance to go aboard the French ships and there's not another broadside coming, was Molly Hart really worth it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're clearly expecting potentially heavy handed treatment on the part of the French. We haven't encountered the French Navy much at all yet, except really at a distance. We've heard more about the Spanish Navy and the local Spanish civilians than we have about the French Navy. We do know that this is the absolute straight up and down, professional, highly trained, highly motivated component of the French. This is all before Trafalgar. This is when the French Navy were roaming the Mediterranean, the Atlantic. We are not really given any idea what to expect for the treatment of Stephen and Jack. You know, we've been given a little bit of karma earlier in this book with the delivery of the French master's wife's baby. But, you know, that's the smallest, smallest peek into anything. You know, I'm yeah, sure you have a time. Very true. But, uh, yeah. Very true. I, you know, we, we came all the way back in this chapter to the music room. We've got Jack breaking his fiddle. Oh. I'm wondering, that, you know, there's one chapter left. Where's this thing going? What's going to happen next? Has Hart won? Is Lord Keith right? Has Jack completely uh, sort of done himself in? Ugh. Yeah. And how, how are the French going to treat not only Jack and Stephen, but the rest of the ship's company as well? What does that mean for Jack's career? What does that mean for Jack's continued presence in the Mediterranean? Mike, I think there's only one question. Um, What would you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Well, as Jack so famously said to Captain Keating, why, I should look upon it as a most welcome, indeed a heaven-sent relief.
to seize fortune while she's within his reach. And he decides to... Most seizing fortune while it's within his reach. There you go, young man. <laughs> Let's let you out to go find out what fortune lies ahead.